If you want this podcast free of ads, follow us now on patreon.com forward slash David McWilliams. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. indicators who knows where this is going to end up to understand the economy you have to understand human nature this podcast is powered by Acast how you doing there it is podcast time and I believe John you have an announcement to make yes I'm rebranding if Zuckerberg can rebrand I'm rebranding what are you going to be I'm not sure yet I'm playing around with a few things and will it be a bit like Prince that you'll be like the artist formerly known as Prince? Yeah, just a symbol. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> anyway, it's good to see you, Ed. It's good to see you. Thank we're, you. We're all climate change. This is the week of climate change. We are. And this is great. I'm, I'm really I'm really, I'm really excited. No, I never say that. <laughs> no, okay, I never heard, say that. I was hearing myself say it. As yeah, I, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's all I, Or the worst is, I'm excited to see you. Yeah. Or no, even worse, I'm excited for yeah. Wrong use of the English language, my man. Yeah. Wrong. It's awesome. It's totally awesome. No, okay. So what are you excited about? I know. I, I'm really interested to see what's going to happen with COP26. In Glasgow. In Glasgow. What kind of progress can be made? By the way, did you know back in, you, we were talking about Germany and... We were last week. Uh, last week and Angela Merkel. Angela Merkel presided over the first COP, COP1 in 1995. And since then, we've had the the Kyoto Protocol and the Paris Agreement, and now this. And I just wonder... That's fascinating, because are you sure about that? Because Merkel wasn't in power in 95. 2005, maybe? 95. Maybe she was the German Minister for the Environment. Yes. And she actually did all the orchestration. Yes. Yeah, probably. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, that's amazing. So that's a long time ago. I wonder what she's going to do in her dotage, in her retirement. Yeah. But she should be healthy, like, though. She should be like Gerhard Schroeder, right? Three-time social democrat, German chancellor. Yeah. Sure he ends up doing his dotage. He's oh. on the board of Gazprom. Oh, was he? By the Russians <laughs> to import gas through a pipeline. The problem, the problem with the, you know, because an awful lot of these guys go off and do their their speaking rounds and speaking yeah, like tours Obama and, and Bill Clinton. Yeah, those. but you see, the problem with Angela Merkel, as much as I like her, she's a bit. Dull. And well, you wouldn't spend the 10 grand to go in and see her or whatever. You probably would on the basis of her experience. But I'll tell you something odd about Germany and former chancellors and what have you, and politicians when they retire on the speaking circuit. 
The Germans have this expression called the Alt-Kanzler, which means the old chancellor. Mm. And it's very, very much you end up being the sort of soul or somewhat the mentor of the nation. This is why they went mad about Schroeder joining. The Germans got really fed up about this, joining Gazprom. Mm. So their idea is that politics is a public service. Yeah. And you are a public servant. Mm-hmm. And then when you're kicked upstairs, you end up like Willy Brandt or Willy Schmidt, the, or Helmut Schmidt, Willy Brandt, these type of characters yeah. who become the conscience of the nation. And what they felt uh, particularly bad about was that Schroeder was besmirching the cloak of the chancellor because he was using his public service and being a public servant to leverage his own money right, after okay. the event, yeah, yeah, yeah. like Tony Blair does all the time. And actually, yeah. speaking of Tony Blair, we're going to be talking about Tony Blair quite soon. Excellent. Have yes. you seen that Blair Brown? I Yeah, I, I dipped in and out of it. I couldn't sit down and watch the whole lot because it actually annoyed me a little bit. Okay. But uh, it was fascinating. And there were two incredible heavyweights in politics. And coming up just after you and I give our heavyweight views on the world <laughs> is Douglas Alexander, who was in both the Brown and the Blair cabinet as one of these incredibly young, incredibly dynamic Labour ministers. Fascinating stuff. Of course, he's from Glasgow. We're going to talk to him in Glasgow in a couple of minutes on climate change. Yeah, and and actually, just before we go there, you know, uh, I was watching a, a really interesting doc. I just came across it on Al Jazeera, and it was called The Campaign Against Climate Change. And it was basically the story about Back in 1988, this climate scientist called Sanders was the guy who first coined the phrase global warming. Okay. And it was really well received, actually, internationally by the likes of George Bush, George H.W. Bush and Blair and, and Brown and all those guys. Or even it would be Thatcher, it would have been Cole, it would have been yes, Mitterrand, it would have actually, been ages ago. Actually, yeah. you're right, it was Thatcher. And they all kind of pricked up their ears and got very interested in it and were made all the right noises that they were going to do something about it. But then the oil lobby got going and what they did was they got all these guys, a lot of them were were economists, some of them were salespeople, but they were all brilliant communicators. And they put kind of, and basically their, their whole campaign was to undermine climate science in exactly the same way as, and actually with some of the same people who worked for the tobacco people to undermine... To undermine the... the just yeah. sowing doubt. That's all it was about, sowing doubt. And the conclusion of the, of the documentary was, if those guys weren't around, we would probably be 30 years ahead of where we are now in terms of solving the climate crisis. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I think economists are responsible, largely, for the slowing down of the climate change agenda. And the reason is the following. Economists, particularly neoclassical economists, the sort of traditional economics that yeah. people learn in university, starts with the market, that the market can price everything. Yeah. And everything is supply and demand, everything, the quantity will re- react, kind of basic stuff, right? What they then talk about are things the market cannot price, like what they call externalities. Mm. And the greatest externality is climate change and global warming. Yeah. So for many, many years, can you imagine this? Mainstream economics regarded climate change as an externality, i.e. something extra that we didn't really have to worry about. 
And well, it was also pretty impossible to to price. So it was kind of this is too difficult. Let's just push it aside. But this is yeah. So the idea is that just because you cannot price something yeah. doesn't mean it's not meaningful. It's what Einstein said, which was great. He said, "Not everything that matters can be counted, and not everything that is counted matters." Yeah, and yeah. it's that sort of idea that if you can't put a price on it, so think about that. Economics also has constantly given people the assumption that we can have growth forever, mm. right? That there are no constraints, that technology is going to, in some way, shape, or form, imagine up a different world. That, was, this, that was Attenborough's great quote. Oh, yeah, like only economists and madmen or something. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, But this all comes from the Industrial Revolution. So if you think of a lot of economics started around the time of Adam Smith, and Adam Smith is living through the Industrial Revolution. He's also living in Scotland. You have John Locke, all these great Scottish philosophers. And there's a huge Scottish school. It's an amazing, amazingly influential school. But they are writing at a time of abundance in the sense that scarce resources weren't there. So you could create new industries by basically digging coal out of the ground mm. and polluting the environment. You could create mechanistic, huge industrial complexes. You didn't have to worry about externalities such as climate change. So in a way, economics started and bedded down in a world where the assumption was resources could be found, right? Could yeah. be found yeah. either technology, mm. and for many, many years, technology really did outsmart nature. And technology did, and innovation did actually create more or less more out of less, okay? Yeah. But now we've reached the limits. We seem to be reaching the limits of this. And it's not because the technology can't do it, but because, in fact, the goalposts have shifted to global warming. Yeah. So we have to change around. But economics, I think, particularly in the last 50 years, was responsible. We spoke about this before, that the reason economics is important is because economists have the ear of policymakers. Policymakers feel that if they don't have an economic solution to a problem, then it gets woolly, unscientific, yeah. and a little bit messy. But if we have an economist to come in and they can give us an answer, it's this idea of the tyranny of numericism, that we always look to have one numerical answer to any question. And as long as we have that, then we progress. Yeah. And I think that's, so economists have kind of elbowed their way in to, if you think about it, after the Second World War, if you had said that the most influential profession in 50 years' time will be economists, people would have laughed at you. Yeah. Because economists were regarded as kind of eccentric, kind of <laughs> unusual creatures, right? <laughs> Case in point. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, right? But now economists have elbowed the way in. And therefore, if you have a subject or a pursuit that doesn't regard the planet as a finite resource, or regards the planet being a finite resource as an externality, an afterthought. Yeah. And if you have that dominating policy for so long, and we also know that lots of economists can be counted on to do a hatchet job on behalf of others. So for example, a great industry like the oil industry will yeah. say, look, what we need is an economist to give us the definitive answer yeah. here. And then we will bash all these hippie Greenpeace people with a, an yeah, economist, yeah, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. So yeah. the economist is wheeled out to bully people yeah. rather than to explain to people. With, with, a, with a big spreadsheet under big their arm. Big spreadsheet and big pointy head, right? Yeah. And the economist, the, the economist as bully, I've always thought that economists 
a certain stage in the last 50 years kind of turned into medieval priests, right? Who basically said, look, don't worry about all those other issues. I've got the answer. You just listen to me. Yeah. You learn the creed, listen to me, and that's it, right? So I think economics has got a significant responsibility for aiding and abetting toxic industries like the oil industry and for bullying the more softer, the softer environmental movement as it was when we were young around Greenpeace, that they just felt morally this was right. Like the, the, yeah, like, well, we, I, we hear the earth cry and the economists say, oh yeah, well, that's all very well, but I've got a number here that tells you the earth isn't crying at all. Yeah. And now, interestingly, the what I find really intriguing is that its economists are now being deployed on the far side to bully the non-climate change people. Yeah. So it's always the same thing that you need this kind of quack science. Well, not quack, but quasi-science. And we see that, but what is interesting is it all comes down to this idea of the, the commons, John, the yeah. tragedy of the commons, yeah, right? Yeah. The tragedy of the commons was there were commonses in Britain and Ireland, which were you could graze your sheep. And basically the tragedy of the commons was something that said, if everybody owns something and nobody owns it, we will always overgraze on it. And ultimately the commons will become barren. But I was thinking, do you know what was the biggest commons in this neck of the woods? What? Dorky Hill. You know all the Vico, you know all Dockey Hill, which is now, yeah. and Kalini Hill, you know yeah. all that? That used to be a huge commons all the way down to White Rock. And yeah. the people living on it for years, people lived on the commons there. And only... On one the like. On one the like, exactly. Yeah, no, yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and only when they started building Dunleary Pier did they start to quarry out that commons and they shifted ah, right, the people okay. off it. Yeah. Because they wanted to actually use the granite from the quarry yeah. to build on Leary Pier, which I think was in about 1820, yeah. 1830. Yeah, but prior yeah. to that, it had been a huge commons full of people living on it. And the tragedy of the commons, of course, was that nobody owned it yeah. and there was no externalities. And ultimately what happened is if you continue to exploit the resources of the commons, nobody stuck their hands up and said, hold on a second. And ultimately the resource got depleted. Same thing with climate change. But this week, the world is meeting in Glasgow, and we are now going to go to Glasgow. When I was in college, actually, we did several field trips up to Scotland, and Glasgow was always the jumping off point. So I don't know it's Glasgow very well. There's a, a couple, there's a place called, I think it was Boozer called the Ubiquitous Chip <laughs> that I remember nice. spending a very nice. long, like long night in the Ubiquitous Chip, maybe some Scottish. Uh, listeners will tell us if that boozer still going. Yeah. But it was a particular it's a great city. It's a great name for a boozer. It's a great name for a boozer. I've I've been in I've been in many good boozers. It's, it's a great city. It's a really fantastic yeah. city. Now we're gonna to go to Scotland now. We're gonna to talk to a big fan of the podcast. Fascinating guy called Douglas Alexander. Yes, who knows the name whose achievements are kind of, you know, yeah. When when he's younger than you, it's really, really annoying. Okay, you think I hear. Is he younger than us? Yes. Oh, God. You think I hear. <laughs> but he served as a minister in Tony Blair and Gordon Brown's yeah. cabinet yeah. as a very young man. Hugely, hugely influential person. Deep understanding of the way, not just the UK, but of global politics and how it works. He's now senior fellow at the Harvard Kennedy Business School. He's a visiting professor at King's, visiting professor at the New York Universities on all sorts of foreign relations committees and councils. So he yeah. knows exactly what's going on. And 
He's a fan of the podcast. He's a man of immense taste. Of course. He can understand things. So we're going to go to Glasgow and talk to Douglas Alexander. Douglas, how are you? Good to see you. I'm, I'm very well, thank you, David. How are you? I'm in flying form now. Is Glasgow on its best behaviour, is it? Because you're, I mean, the, we have this great idea in Ireland called the good room. I don't know if you have one of those in Scotland. Did every house we have do, a good room? The, po- the posh sitting room is what it's called in Scotland. Exactly. So the good room, you know, when the really posh neighbours or cousins come over, everyone goes into the good room and everyone's on their best behaviour. Now, Glasgow, Glasgow this afternoon is playing host to... 190 world leaders. That is like the good room squared. The city has to be, so is there a sense of, let's be in our best behavior here, lads. We've got, we've got posh people in town. There's a genuine sense that Glasgow's welcoming the world. And you're right, with more than 190 countries coming to the banks of the Clyde, to the um, Hydro and the Armadillo, as they're known in Glasgow, which is where this conference is taking place. I think there's a genuine sense of excitement. There's a bit of frustration that some of the roads are closed. But apart from that, I think there's a genuine sense of excitement. Now, listen, tell me, tell me about this conference. The last climate change conference, but one you were, and I want to, so I want to get an insight before we talk about the big news. You were on the British delegation team. What are these things like? They're basically a big intergovernmental negotiation with a corporate jamboree outside the fence. And even further outside the fence, there's big street demonstrations. So in Glasgow this week and next week, inside the room, you will have uh, President Biden, you'll have his special envoy, John Kerry, you will have Prime Minister Trudeau, you will have representatives, Prime Minister Modi from all around the world. That's inside the steel fence. Outside the fence, there are businesses and organisations who are wanting to be associated with the conference. And then on Friday, Greta Thunberg is leading a huge youth demonstration. On Saturday, there'll be a big demonstration. So there are voices of ordinary people. There are voices of government ministers and negotiators. It's, it's quite a crowd. We're expecting about twenty to 25,000 international delegates in Glasgow this week. Wow. Wow, that's extraordinary. That is extraordinary. Now, tell me, so what I notice about this one, before we get into the, what's going to happen, is that the world leaders are coming first. Now, typically in these things, from what I know, the leaders come in last. The civil servants do all their stuff. There's the smoky rooms. There's the deals done. And then there's hopefully a communique at the end that says, okay, we've got what we want. Whereas this way, you've kind of inverted it in a wee bit. And the leaders are coming first. What's that about? Well, that's really a reflection of the conference that I attended as part of the British ministerial delegation, which was... COP15. There's a conference of the parties every year, but truthfully, they only really matter every five years. So we had Copenhagen in 2009, which was pretty much a disaster, despite the title beforehand, which was Hopenhagen. So great were the expectations. 2015 in Paris, instead of the world coming apart, as it did in Copenhagen, it came together. It was a really successful and historic event. And that's really set the bar for Glasgow this week and next week. And in that sense, an awful lot of the work is done in these negotiations before the delegates actually arrive in Glasgow this week. I would think about it as there's a flight path and then there's a landing zone. And a lot of the work is done in the negotiations that took place last weekend when the G20 ministers were meeting in Rome. Let's remember about 80% of global emissions around the world are generated by those 20 largest economies. So if you sort the G20, you're well on the way to sorting the international negotiation. So there's been a lot of work that's done beforehand. There will be an agreement that is 
not completely written, but partially written before anybody arrives in Glasgow. And then in the room, there's a lot of arm twisting, a lot of hard negotiation to try and raise the level of ambition to get to an agreement. And that worked really well in France. It worked really badly back in Denmark in 2009. And uh, can I just ask you before we talk, Boris Johnson is the host and the orchestrator of this. Does that fill you with confidence? Are you kidding? Um, no. <laughs> no, I mean, listen, you need great skill and acumen as a negotiator to land a successful climate deal. And great skill and acumen as a negotiator would not be words I would naturally associate with Boris Johnson, the British Prime Minister. The truth is, despite their best efforts, the Danes really struggled to convene a successful conference back in Copenhagen. We had about 10,500 delegates, 15,000 observers who were with us in Copenhagen. But as you say, the delegates arrived early, but the leaders arrived at the end of the conference in Copenhagen. We all turned up, and rather to the surprise of the world leaders, there was no agreement to sign. And so you had the spectacle of then President Obama gate-crashing a meeting of the South Africans and the Chinese and others. It was chaotic, it was a fiasco, and it was a pretty grim day for international diplomacy. In contrast, a few years later in Paris in 2015, the orchestra conductor was Laurent Fabius, the French foreign minister, and the French did a brilliant job in choreographing the conference. So they arranged for the, the world leaders to come for the first couple of days because they wanted to create a sense of momentum and energy with world leaders arriving and making big pledges at the beginning to create a sense of possibility that an agreement could be reached. And that's the model that's being followed here in Glasgow. We've got world leaders um, who have been in Glasgow since Monday. They're here today on Tuesday. Tomorrow is the day that's focusing on finance. Thursday is focusing on energy. And then Friday is a youth day when Greta Thunberg will lead this huge demonstration through the city. So in that sense, the British hosts have learned to bring the world leaders at the beginning of the summit. But there's a long way to go between getting world leaders at the beginning of the summit and making a success of the summit at the end of the conference. I was just thinking British diplomats learning from the French, that must be a first time, at least admitting it uh, in, in public. Now, let's go to the issue. The issue is to try and keep, if I'm right, the temperature of the globe to within 1.5 degrees increase from where we are now. This is it. Tell me, why, why is that target so important? Because the scientists tell us that if we limit temperature rise to one and a half degrees, while we will still see extreme weather events like we've seen over the last year and over recent years, life will be much more habitable than if we allow global temperatures to rise to two degrees but don't take my word for it. It was the president of the Maldives, the Pacific Island state, who said, you just need to understand two degrees is a death sentence for the Maldives. So in that sense, with global sea levels rising, it would make the Maldives uninhabitable to see temperatures rise at two degrees. If, for example, we saw temperatures rise by two degrees, not only would the sea levels rise, but the sea, the sea temperature would also rise with the effect that we would lose massive amounts of coral reefs that would still be protected at one and a half degrees. So the judgment that one and a half degrees is the prize and the big prize of Glasgow is keeping one and a half degrees alive, it's not actually a political judgment. It's a judgment based on physics, biology and arithmetic. So tell me, so one and a half degrees 
from now until 2030 or 2050? This century, so 2050, is the year that we need to get to net zero in terms of our emissions if we are to keep global temperature rises to one and a half degrees above pre-industrial revolution temperatures this century. So we know that the temperature is going to rise. The question is by how much? And frankly, as Glasgow was beginning at the beginning of this week, there was a real sense amongst insiders that one and a half degrees is slipping out of reach. And that it is in danger of being a zombie target that nobody wants to admit is dead and buried because it was the centrepiece of that agreement in Paris in 2015. It's important because it raises the level of ambition for a lot of countries around the world. But a lot of informed observers believe the best we can do now is not actually one and a half degrees, but it's probably a two degree temperature rise. So you don't want to be owning real estate in the Maldives? Well, it's not just in the Maldives. Right right around the world, the consequences are going to be very real. Okay, let's, let, let's, let's get back to this, right? So tell me what sort of change in our lifestyles is necessary for us to hit that 1.5 degree target? And how much of that is immediate? How much do we have to start doing this immediately? Let's let's forget that we might slip. Let's let's assume the optimistic we might get there, right? What do we have to do in order to do that? Then we can talk about the consequences of not getting there. Well, there's two different ways that you should think about it. One is, what do we need to do to mitigate temperature rise, which is to stop temperatures rising to those kind of two or beyond two degrees threshold that the scientists are so worried about. And then there's a second category called adaptation, which is a certain amount of temperature rise is already baked in. So how do we adapt to that reality? And that's a very real question, for example, in small island states who are already facing the reality of sea levels rising. So I would think about this in the terms that John Kerry has used, which is this is the decisive decade. Lots of companies and countries are committing to net zero by 2050, but it is absolutely critical that you have near-term targets and you do the right things in starting that transition in this decade if there is any realistic possibility that you're going to meet your targets by 2050. It's all too easy for politicians to pledge something for 2050. They think, I'll be out of office, it won't be my problem. So to give you a Scottish analogy, if you're If you know that you're getting married next year and you need to fit into your kilt, then the quicker you start the diet, the more likely it is you're going to be standing at the altar in your kilt. If you wait until the week before the wedding and then you say, right, I'm going to go on a diet, you might still have that goal, but you're not going to meet it. Nobody believes you're going to meet it. So the urgency is to start the work now, start the diet now, start the transformation now. And that's what John Kerry is arguing very strongly as the American climate envoy, which is this is the decisive decade and we need to take steps now not to elongate the carbon in the economy but to transform ourselves away from that carbon it's so i'm going to just i'm going to just stop it there before I, I was at a wedding in northern ireland and there is a tradition amongst certain uh, a certain uh, tribe in northern ireland to wear the kilt to reaffirm their scottishness uh, at weddings and it was exactly that it was a wee man who was a lit, little rounder then he was tall, trying to get into the kilt, a relation of mine. So I know exactly what you're talking about. Had we the great wisdom, we could have told him, stop eating the pies and drinking the pints. But an actual Absolutely. fact, I, I can actually tell you, there had to be a little incision made in the kilt. And it had to be actually 
stretched apart and thrown up. Anyway, well, sadly, a... a climate is a bit more confusing and challenging than a kilt. If it exactly. was just a minor incision, it wouldn't be a big problem. Okay, so let's go back. So what do we have to do? So John Kerry's saying, we've got to start now. Countries like Scotland, countries like Ireland, what are we talking about? What are we talking about in agriculture? What are we talking about in transport? What are we talking about in construction? All these, all these massive carbon-heavy industries. Yeah. Well, let's start with what's the relationship between this conference that's happening in Glasgow and all of those sectors of the economy. In, in the language of the conference, each of the 196 countries coming to Glasgow are going to make what's called an NDC, a nationally determined contribution. And it's called that because they're nationally determined. They're made by each individual country, and it's a contribution to reducing the amount of carbon that their economy generates and pumps into the atmosphere. And in that sense, what every country is coming forward with is an NDC in Glasgow. The scientists then add up all of those commitments to reduce carbon, and that's what gives you the figure as to whether we're looking at a 2.7 degree temperature rise, which is where we are at the moment, whether the new commitments that are made in Glasgow will get us down to about two degrees or indeed right down to one and a half degrees. All politicians want to be seen to be making international commitments. The problem is there is a consequence of the international commitment, which is in domestic politics and domestic policy. So that dictates the speed at which, for example, you phase out um, petrol cars in favour of electric vehicles. It determines the speed at which you phase out coal-generated electricity power stations and replace that either with gas-fired power stations or in time renewables. And that's going to be a big theme of the conference, that one of the big challenges of the conference is to get global agreement as to when we're going to phase out the internal combustion engine. Um, the idea is that that should be aimed for around 2035, which is pretty soon. Look at the valuation of Tesla right now. And at the same time, they're looking for an agreement to be reached in Glasgow that coal will be phased out in the developed world by 2030 and in the developing world by 2040. So whether it is in how we generate electricity, whether it is in how we move around in terms of electric cars or internal combustion engines, we're all going to be feeling the effects of the international commitments that are made in Glasgow for many years to come. And tell us, Douglas, how are those commitments now policed, right? So everyone's Everyone goes up and, as you said, people want to look like good global citizens. So they're going to say, yeah, we're up for this. We're going to do what we want. How then are those industries going to be policed? Will there be penalties? Will there be penalties for delinquents who who who, who just simply don't do it? Will there be a, a, you know, you're doing well, but you're not there yet sort of idea? What sort of incentive structure is going to be there? Well, one of the similarities between the agreement on climate and the Good Friday Agreement in Northern Ireland was that nothing is agreed until everything is agreed. It's agreed by unanimity. And one of the problems is it's very difficult to create real penalties for the slowest boats in the convoy. So a big part of Glasgow over the next 10 days is actually in confidence building, is saying to countries and governments around the world, if you make ambitious pledges we're not going to be stealing a march on you economically because we are making the same journey and indeed we're travelling at least as fast as you are. And that's why these conferences matter because they make transparent yeah. the transition plans that each individual country is making. Now, here in the United Kingdom, we've actually legislated to get to net zero by 2050. So we've set up a climate committee which is independent of government 
which monitors the performance of how we are doing as the United Kingdom in our goal of 2030 targets, 2040 targets, and to be at net zero by 2050. That's a distinctive approach for the UK. We're encouraging, as the hosts of COP26, other countries to take a similar approach. But you're right to recognise that there's a huge amount of work underway in making sure that you don't just have a target, but you also have a plan and that you're then held accountable for the plan that sits beneath the target. John. Douglas, sorry, where do you reckon the the sticking points are? I mean, I know that the UK have legislated for all these targets, but globally, wh- where do you think the sticking points are? Because I know that China also is dragging their, their feet a little bit with regards to coal. Well, the Chinese have um, taken a different approach internationally than domestically, because internationally, just before this meeting in Glasgow, they made a very important commitment that they were no longer going to finance new investment in coal as part of their Belt and Road Initiative, which is spending many, many hundreds of millions of dollars in countries right around South and Southeast Asia. So in that sense, they've moved back from financing coal internationally. But as you've been discussing on the podcast, the Chinese economy is facing some real challenges at the moment. So very disappointingly, they seem to be doubling down on coal production because the Chinese rely heavily on coal-fired power stations for electricity at the moment. So there was a big hope before Glasgow that the Chinese would make a very dramatic nationally determined contribution that would help us stay on the path to 1.5 degrees. That confidence has really drained away in the last few days with the Chinese making commitments that are broadly in line with where they've been in recent years. They were absolutely central to Paris. And there's uncertainty as to why the Chinese haven't gone further or faster ahead of Glasgow. Before Paris, the geopolitics was a bit easier. You had Xi Jinping meeting with President Obama in the months immediately before the Paris conference in 2015 and deciding that they would move together. As we've all seen in our newspapers and on our televisions in the last few months, whether it is the treatment of the Uyghurs, whether it is Hong Kong's crackdown, whether it is concerns about Taiwan, the geopolitics between the United States and China at the moment is pretty tough. So first of all, Xi Jinping has announced that he's only attending the conference virtually. He hasn't left the People's Republic of China since before the pandemic. Secondly, there hasn't been that bilateral meeting between President Biden and Xi Jinping that there was between Obama and Xi Jinping before Paris. And thirdly, the expectation is the Chinese are not going to make a dramatic new commitment. And given China is the biggest emitter of carbon globally, you really need the Chinese to be stepping up if we're going to keep that temperature rise to one and a half degrees. Douglas, I want to just conclude this on what happens if it doesn't happen. So I want you to talk to me about displacement. I want you to talk to me about sea levels rising, what it actually means in reality, because I think many, many people, the one, the one weird thing about climate change is a bit like doing your homework, you know? You never do your homework until it's Sunday night after nine o'clock, even though you got the homework on Friday afternoon. And in your head, you said, I'll do it on Saturday, I'll do it on Sunday morning, but next for you, panic Sunday night. It's the same sort of general idea, a bit like your, your kilt boy. Now, what happens if we don't do it? What is What are the scientists saying? Not, not what, what we as economists want to say. What are the scientists saying? Well, we will see significantly increased numbers of severe weather events. The world is warming year on year. There's no real dispute now as to what the consequences of failing to keep temperature rises 
to one and a half or to two degrees looks like. It looks like significant areas of, of land that are flooded because of rising sea levels. It means significant species depletion as a consequence of temperatures rising on land and in the water. It means whole areas of Earth are much less habitable for human beings. So it brings challenges like mass migration in its wake. And there are real economic costs and consequences as well. Mark Carney, the former governor of the Bank of England, will here on Wednesday in Glasgow be setting out what are the consequences for the financial sector, and in particular the insurance industry, if we don't manage to try and stop the acceleration of those dangerous weather events. But I think there's another point, David, that needs to be understood. If we only see climate change as a threat, I worry it will be, it will be like a diet which everybody knows they should go on, but they don't feel motivated to actually take the action. You know, if information was sufficient for us all to go on a diet, we'd all be a lot slimmer than we are just now. You need information and motivation. And in recent weeks, I had the great privilege of talking with John Kerry, who's now here in Glasgow meeting the American delegation with Joe, with Joe Biden. And he said, listen, the two biggest job creators in the United States at the moment are wind turbine installers and solar panel installers. And he said, if you've been part of the carbon economy, of course you're concerned as to what's going to happen sure. to your job. But there are huge new opportunities in a low-carbon economy. The question is, how do we make that transition effectively and in a way that doesn't leave anybody behind? And that's a really important message in a city like Glasgow that suffered really bad deindustrialization over the last 30, 40, 60 years to be able to look to a future which is actually not just better for the environment, but holds out the prospects of decent jobs with decent wages. Now, just think, if you were to travel north of Glasgow now, northwest, for 200 miles, you're going to be hit by extraordinary winds, right? All up the west coast of Scotland. Likewise, the west coast of Ireland, from Kerry up all to Donegal. You know, we complain about the fact that it's, you know, in our staycation, you get blown away, right? But... Therein lies a massive, massive opportunity for our part of the world. That being in the northwest of the Atlantic, we are buffeted by wind and wave. What is your sense of the potential for wind and wave in our economies, in our societies, that we could actually benefit enormously from something like this over the next 30 years? The potential for the Irish economy and for the Scottish economy in particular are huge. The technology is catching up with that opportunity. Because if you look at where most of the offshore wind farms in the UK are at the moment, they are in the southern part of the North Sea because that's very shallow. So you can attach the turbines to what's a fairly shallow continental shelf at that point. Once you move further north into the northern part of the North Sea off the Scottish coast, or indeed you move into the Atlantic west of Ireland, what you're looking at are floating wind turbines. And here the technology is rapidly developing. So actually there's the capacity to anchor these turbines in a way that means despite the water being very deep, you can have huge numbers of turbines generating a huge amount of power. We have the largest onshore wind farm anywhere in Western Europe, just to the south of Glasgow here at Whiteleys. That gives you a glimpse of the future, not just for Scotland, but also, I would argue, for Ireland in terms of power generation. No, it's, I think it's, it's fascinating. I want to come back to this, Douglas, because this is a fascinating area, and I don't think people in our neck of the woods really appreciate that, you know, I've said it before, you know, we could become the Saudi or Qatar of renewables over the next 30 years, but that demands 
a type of imagination. You've got to build an industry. You've got to build supply chains. You've got to get technicians, engineers, everything. You've got to change your whole education system to create. But David, that's exactly the point. And the reason I smiled when you said we could be the Saudi Arabia, that was the phrase that Alex Salmond used here in Scotland more than a decade ago when he said we could be the Saudi Arabia of wind. But like rather a lot of the promises he made, what we've ended up with are turbines that are produced in Denmark or in China or elsewhere. In the Chinese sea, climate change is not just an opportunity for international cooperation, but geostrategic competition. So they have decided they are going to double down on the technologies of tomorrow. So why is it they, we've seen the price of solar panels come down fantastically in recent years? Why have we seen the cost of renewables come down so much? Because of the mass production within China. So the real opportunity for Ireland and for Scotland is not just can we harness the natural resource of our wind power, but how do we whole supply chain benefits the Irish economy and benefits the Scottish economy? Because that's where we've done badly in recent years in Scotland. And I think there are some lessons there for Ireland. Don't just let somebody come and exploit effectively the natural resources to the west of Ireland. Make sure that in terms of the onshore jobs that they create and the value that is generated, Ireland keeps as much of the benefit of its natural resources as it can within the country. That's the opportunity. And that's where the experience, frankly, of Scotland and elsewhere could probably be quite helpful and instructive. No, I think absolutely. And that's I think lots of people listening to the podcast will think, you know, don't miss the trick this time, okay? Because there has been a huge movement in Ireland about turning the country kind of into a slightly an extractive industry. So you got stuff, you just extracted out, you give the value out yeah. to other people and away you go. Before I let you go, I have been watching this Brown Blair thing. Now you were in this cabinet, so you can't go away. You were in Tony Blair's cabinet. You have known Blair and Brown all your adult life. You've worked with the two of them. I always, I, I, as I was saying to, to, to Alec Ross, actually, a mate of yours the other, the other, the other week, that yep. testimony is always so much more interesting than analysis. Like being in the room, knowing these people, Brown and Blair, Tell me about each one, their styles, their differences, the whole thing. Because it's amazing, 20 years nearly after their heyday, well, it's at least 15 years after their heyday, they still capture the British political imagination much more than any other duet or, 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 or double act. Tell me about them. Well, you're right. I served both in Tony Blair's cabinet and then in Gordon Brown's cabinet. But my work with them actually started long before that. I went to Edinburgh University and was taught by a tutor who had supervised Gordon Brown's PhD, which was reputedly the best first-class honours awarded by Edinburgh University since the Second World War, wow. Gordon having gone to Edinburgh University at just 16. So wow. the first thing you need to know about Gordon is just he has a phenomenal intellect. He's a seriously clever individual. Um, but in that sense, I started work for them as a relatively young man, speech writing. I then wrote for Neil Kinnock and John Smith, for Tony Blair and for Gordon Brown. So I had the privilege of seeing them when they were at the top of their game in opposition and then working with both of them in their cabinets when they were prime ministers. The first thing I would say would be there is a striking consistency in Gordon Brown's political life. I was actually... Um, watching him on television here in the United Kingdom in recent days, making the case that there should be an international airlift of vaccines that are about to go over date in the developed world, and they should be shipped to the developing world before the end of the year, because there's about 200 million vaccines that we're not going to actually use in the developed world that could be vaccinating people in the developing world. 
that reveals a concern about poverty and the poor that has been a constant of Gordon Brown's political life. If you'd met him as I did back in 1990, he would have been talking about poverty then as he is talking about it more than 30 years on. Actually, I had my interview with Gordon watching a Scotland football match. I thought I was going to be asked a series of questions. I turned up at his flat in Edinburgh and he was watching football, which continues to be one of his obsessions as well as poverty reduction. In contrast, I would say Tony Blair is probably the most gifted communicator British politics has seen, certainly in my lifetime. And that's why when they worked effectively together, they were literally unbeatable. Because what we were able to do with Gordon Brown was have a politician who made sense of new Labour to the Labour Party in a brilliant and convincing way. And in Tony Blair, an extraordinarily gifted politician who could make sense of new Labour to the country. So if you'd one politician who was talking to the party and saying, this is why we're doing what we're doing this, and saying to the country, on the other hand, this is the difference that we could make, we basically marginalised the Conservatives for more than a decade. And I said in that documentary, they were, they were the Lenin and McCartney of, of, of Labour politics. And I, I think they were. They were an extraordinary combination. Can I just talk to you then about the legacy? Because I lived in the UK in the 90s, as did John. Uh, John stayed there for a little bit. You stayed until the 2000s, didn't you? Uh, yes, I did, Joe. Yeah. Uh, and I saw the, the Blair-Brown kind of whirlwind, and it really was, and it was exciting, and things going to get better, and it was all that sort of stuff. And the first few years went extremely well. And I saw you emerging as a young politician, etc. The legacy is very tarnished now of actually both men, maybe unfairly on Brown's case, maybe fairly on Blair's, depending where you stand. But, but isn't that the fascinating thing that a three-time winner an amazing, a four-time government. We're talking four governments, those two guys. Uh, and yet now their legacy is, is, is pretty tarnished. Now, and we're kind of watching TV about them rather than sitting down to listen to them opine properly as ex-powerful people. I, I think to understand that legacy, you need to understand the coincidence of Iraq in foreign policy and the global financial crisis in domestic policy. Because if you like, there is no doubt, and I served in Tony Blair's cabinet and regard him as a friend, Tony Blair's reputation has been profoundly affected by the decisions taken in 2003 in relation to Iraq. And Gordon Brown, who had built a platform of economic stability and strength prior to 2008, was the British Prime Minister when the storm struck. We had a huge financial services sector. We had a globalised economy. So, of course, we were hit very hard by a crisis that started in the Mississippi mortgage market. But in that sense, if you want to understand the legacy of the two men today, then inevitably there is a place both for Iraq and for the global financial crisis in the account of that time of office. Truthfully, and I share the responsibility for this, I think we took the right policy steps after the financial crisis, but the consequence of that was horrible politics because we made a judgment that we needed to bail out the banks so that people could get cash out of the wall when they put their card in in the immediate aftermath of the financial crisis. But the sense of injustice that was felt by many people who faced hardship and saw bankers continuing to stay in their jobs, never mind not face sanction or charges, meant that the politics were really horrible. And in George Osborne and David Cameron, who came after us, they basically very effectively set up an argument saying the deficit caused the crisis, when the reality is the crisis caused the deficit. But 
you know, they, they managed to sustain that storyline between 2008 and 2010. We denied them a majority, which is why we ended up with that liberal conservative coalition. But I think any party that was in power in 2008 was going to really struggle afterwards electorally, given quite how difficult the choices that any government was facing, not least given the size of the financial services sector within the UK. Just lastly, when I look at British politics, at least looking at those guys, you're thinking that's politics. They were doing politics. When I look now at this Tory cabinet, I think, I don't know what they're doing, but it doesn't look like politics to me. How does that make you feel when you see these guys running running the shop there? um, Honestly, it makes me proud to have been part of that government that was the most redistributive government we've seen in Britain since 1945. And at the same time, it shows me how politics has shifted because the politics that you and I grew up with was essentially about the size of the state. It was what level of taxes is appropriate? Are you cutting spending or increasing spending? Are you spending money in the UK on the health service or in education or whatever? We've seen a big shift in politics in recent years to being about identity more than ideology, about who we are as much as about what we do as politicians. And that that makes it hard for social democratic parties. We've seen the social democrats do well recently in Germany, but it means that populists who say we represent you and um, the other guys are to blame have been in the ascendancy. And a politics that's basically about the size of the state and about economics rather than identity and belonging has taken a bit of a backseat. The other point I'd make, though, is David Cameron was once asked, why do you want to be prime minister? And I think in the most revealing answer he ever gave, this was when he was leader of the Conservative opposition, he said, because I think I'd be good at it. What a devastating indictment of his old Etonian pretensions. And and in that sense, first of all, he turned out to be very bad at it, not very good at it. But, But it speaks to an emptiness that a chap like him deserves to run the country. And actually, when you look at Gordon Brown or Tony Blair, they had a very different approach. They were there to do things, not to be things. And in that sense, I think one of the changes is that shift from ideology to identity, which is not just in the UK, but we've seen across Western Europe and indeed in North America, but also the character of the people in power. You know, it it used to be said that once you get the top job, power changes you. I've never believed that. And working very closely with Gordon Brown and Tony Blair, the truth is getting to Downing Street doesn't change your character. It reveals your character. And actually, the... The character that's been revealed for David Cameron, just the superficiality, or or Boris Johnson, the the say one thing to the DUP in Northern Ireland and say another thing to the Conservatives back home in London, I don't think has been kind to either of those Prime Minister. Theresa May, I think, actually was a fairly decent individual, although I think she struggled in the role. So in that sense, I think it shows that character matters in politics. And in that sense, whether you commit your life to tackling poverty or you commit your life just to being prime minister, ends up having consequences for all of us. Douglas Alexander, or as John will call you, Alexander Douglas, because <laughs> he hasn't been in Scotland for that long. <laughs> Douglas, that was great. Really, really good. Listen, thanks so much. And we'll talk to you soon. Well, we'll, we'll catch up after the, uh, after the conference, see how we went. Definitely. No problem at all. We'll do that. Okay, John, good to meet you. Take care. Thanks, Bye. 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 Bye
There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. After such an introduction and such a, a list of accolades, He's finally, he he's finally topped it off by coming onto the podcast. Yeah, no, he is. And I, and I know it's going, to be on, it's going to be on his CV. It's going to be Douglas Alexander, irregular contributor to the David McRae's podcast. It's going to be number one. Forget your visiting professor. That'd be quite funny. Wouldn't it? Anyway. He was great. Well, he it's was just, really, it's really fascinating stuff from somebody, John, there, who again, and I'm always more likely to listen to somebody who's been in the room. Yeah, of course. Yeah, you know? absolutely. And I think at the end there, what we we're talking about, something we touched on a couple of weeks ago, is the enormous potential for this part of the world to actually profit from the opportunity that is climate change. This is the whole idea that it's a boom to us. And that idea that we have to figure out a 50-year plan for education, for technological education, creating mechanics, engineers, technicians, people who can understand supply chains, yep. people who understand batteries. Tesla is at $1 trillion and it's a battery company. It's not a, not a car company. Yeah. It's yeah, a yeah, bet. Yeah. So, you know, what Ireland should be saying is Tesla shows you the enormous financial value being on the right side of this argument. So get on the right side of the argument. Thanks again to all our Patreons. And of course, on Patreon, you get ad-free, you get the course, you get AdMax. And the course is a 14-lecture tour around the world of money, past, present, future, the whole thing. You get the notes, you get the reading list, all that. It's all on patreon.com forward slash David McWilliams. This is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years, too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. 
Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. <laughs> 